Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to explore how companies scale in a series that we've been doing le- recently. This idea of what it takes to take a company that's two months to two years and growing the, the HR departments, growing the sales departments, and really as a founder, uh, growing yourself, growing yourself from the point of view of, of managerial skills, leadership skills, visionary skills. And today we have a guest uh, who's had experience helping founders along their journey. I'll let her tell the whole story of her background, but the way we met was that she was an operating partner at Pico Partners in Israel, and she was telling me about the role of the operating partner, And it was an interesting one because that was what her role was. She would work with uh, companies that were anywhere between two months to to two years old and help them with getting their uh, internal bits organized and and ready for scaling. So with that, welcome, Danielle. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that we like to do when we kick off is, is talk a little bit about your background. So before Pico, what was it that you were doing and how did you end up there? Sure. So I have a pretty traditional background. I grew up in the U.S. and worked there uh, both at Morgan Stanley and at Bain. My husband was transferred to Israel in 2006, and I realized very quickly that consulting and investment banking is, is not the field that you go into in Israel. Startup nation, so much high tech, so many people coming out of the military with really exciting, innovative technologies, and I had to play a part in, in startup nation and the startup ecosystem. So I landed a job at Benchmark Capital. Benchmark Capital, the huge Silicon Valley fund, had two dedicated Israeli-specific funds. So there was a few folks there uh, and myself, and I was a a vice president there, sourcing deals, investing in deals, and really helping the entrepreneurs build out their companies. So I was almost a consultant within Benchmark because we invested so early and there were so many missing pieces um, in the startups where we deployed capital. They needed a lot of consulting help to get their businesses off the ground for additional fundraising, strategy, go-to-market, product, etc. After Benchmark, each of the Benchmark partners started their own funds. And so I wound up moving over to Pico as an operating partner. And I've done lots of operational stints, both within the Benchmark portfolio, within the Pico portfolio. And I recently left Pico and joined Boston Consulting Group Digital Ventures. And we can talk about that as well. Excellent. Well, that's like the best biography summary ever. Um, okay, well, let's dig deeper into this idea of an operating partner, because I think what really captivated me about our original conversation way back when was this idea that you're like the equivalent of like a Navy SEAL that gets dropped in to a company to help out uh, on an executive capacity and in, in dealing with multiple different things. And we were talking uh, offline a little bit about what that methodology is. And, and it, it isn't a methodology as such. It's not a book you know, you've written that comes with step one through five, but there is some process. There is some reasoning. There's some art to it. Let's kick that off. What is it that you do day one? And first of all, maybe we take a step back. What is an operating partner? And then once you've defined that, what is the thing you do day one? 
Sure. So listen, I wish there was a book on how to be an operating partner because it would have made my life a lot easier. We were creating it as we, as we went along. And I think operating partner means something different at every, at every venture fund. So at some funds, it means you are a subject matter expert in a specific field. So you are someone who knows how to build a sales team or you are a marketing guru. In my role, it was more of a ninja. In fact, the benchmark guys refer to me sometimes as the ninja because I would go in to fill a gap. And so what would happen is we would often be looking looking at an investment and decide to put in seed round capital or a round capital. And the issue would be, this was the stage where you had to move from being a family to being a company. And if you, if you kind of apply the lens of looking at all the different areas that have to happen in a startup, oftentimes there are gaps. And those gaps just happen naturally because founders are strong in certain areas. So you may have a founder that's very strong in sales and business development, but they, they lack some of the, the nuances of dealing with the internal organization, the functions such as HR and onboarding new hires and recruiting or, or legal and finance. And so I would look very closely at the organization and kind of map out the different functional areas and see where there were gaping holes that would prevent us from getting to the to the next round in the company's evolution. And oftentimes I would parachute in and help um, on those functional areas. So it would differ company by company. If you have to define the that first, let's say, 50 days as a process of deduction from the, the the areas that were weaker, not because the founder's weaker, but just because those areas that have lacked focus. If you had to walk us through what those 50 days look like, is it getting to know everybody in the team? Is it um, coming up with a, a whiteboard full of things that are wrong and then trying to address them one by one? Walk us through the, the black arts of, of getting a plan in place to, to get the right processes going. Sure. So, I think, you know, getting buy-in from the founders and the rest of the employees is critical. Usually this is not my first meet and greet with them when I parachute in. We were very clear um, when we deployed capital at Pico that I was an operating partner and that myself or one of my colleagues might step in and help. And that was one of the values that we provided to our portfolio companies. They knew they had gaps. They knew they had gaps in staffing. They knew they had gaps in processes. So we were always very clear that this is how our model works, that we not only invest capital, but we invest sweat equity in terms of helping companies evolve and and mature. Um, And so if if there was an opportunity where I would have to go in, I would spend a lot of time with the management team and the founders and the board trying to identify the different areas that needed help and attention. And so, for instance, if we said it was the sales, the sales area and the handoff from sales to account management, I would map out a plan and say, you know, these are the different areas and make sure there was buy-in across the organization because it is very hard to butt heads with entrepreneurs and, and that's not setting up the relationship for success. And so there could be a case where we would see an area that we thought needed attention, but maybe we would deprioritize it because there wasn't buy-in and alignment among either the board members or the founders. And so you, you want to start the relationship off right from the start. And so that that's a process that everyone is involved in. So the, the buying process sounds like the most critical thing then in the first 50 days. What, what, um, what pattern did you notice in terms of what most companies get wrong that, that you just picked up? Is there one area, I mean, maybe this overgeneralized the question, but is there any one area that you see people just neglect more than they should? 
I think that any startup is so focused on achieving product market fit and getting those first few customers. And so you have the CEO out in the field doing sales. You might have the sales guy out in the field doing sales. And everyone is so happy when that customer is is signed. But oftentimes, what do you do with them next? And how do you manage them day to day? Because the sales team has already moved on to the pipeline and closing the next deal. And sometimes ensuring that those customers have a really successful onboarding experience and know how to use the product effectively. And then our potential targets for an upsell often goes overlooked because the sales team is not incentivized to increase uh, that customer and no one else usually in an organization is is 100% focused on them. So that is often an area um, where we need to staff up in the in the early days once there are customers on board. Mm. That's a good point. Now, if we look, if we go back to that post 50 days now, right, you've, you've got bought in, there's potentially some holes that have been identified. There's probably some ideas that have boiled up in terms of how to fix them and set things in motion to, to hit the plan that was articulated to, to the investors and to the founder agreed to. How do you start building out the organization to support that? Because in some ways, as an operating partner or as somebody who is external, external, um, you're not necessarily seen as one of, of, the, of the tribe, if you will. And, and as a consequence, you either run the risk of disintermediating management structures and, and having a sort of dependency, or you create a, a form of animosity um, t- towards that and perhaps even rejection towards the perfectly good ideas. So how do you manage that? In that role, and how would you recommend people who bring external consultants in, maybe not necessarily operating partners as mm-hmm. part of their VC fund, but just generally, how, how, do you, how do you recommend to founders managing bringing in external help, which supplements internal roles without making them feel disintermediated and, and reject uh, some of the advice that comes through the door? Yeah, that, that's actually a great point. And I think we learned a lot of lessons at Benchmark when I would parachute in and help, help either on fundraising or help on a go-to-market plan or help help on product. Um, and the management team needs to feel like you are wearing one hat. And that hat is that you are a part of the management team and focused 100% on helping the company succeed, not that you are a spy reporting back to the board and the investors. And so I think the mistake that we made at Benchmark in the early days was keeping me on the benchmark payroll and letting me go in a day or two a week and try and help out while also wearing my benchmark hat. Mm-hmm. It worked much more successfully when we set a specific time limit saying, I will help on this go-to-market project for two months, or I will help um, deal with operations for 18 months, or I will help run a business unit for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I moved over completely my day job was the portfolio company, not the VC. Um, and so my incentives were very much aligned with the management team. The management team viewed me as, as part of the team. I was in management meetings. I was in daily standups because when you're wearing two hats, no one knows which, which side you're on. And so at Pico, it was very clear. And even in my, my later days at Benchmark, I, I would move into more full-time roles within the portfolio company so that there would be no animosity between myself and, and the management team. But it took us a while to, to learn that lesson, unfortunately. Mm, but it sounds that then, therefore, that consultants, external consultants would be almost near impossible to then achieve the same result. 
I don't think so, because if you're hiring an external consultant who's an expert on Salesforce effectiveness or an expert on, you know, setting up the, the legal function or the finance function, and they're they're viewed that way, as long as there's no conflict of interest, mm-hmm. that they're also then reporting back to shareholders or board members, I, mm-hmm. I think it's okay. And I think everybody values that expertise that some of those folks bring to the table and realize there's no long-term role once you set up the finance function or you yeah. set up the legal function it's set up and then you can go out and hire against open roles. I think it's trickier when you come from the VC mm-hmm. in-house because people are always worried that you're, you're back channeling to, to the board members. Yeah, fair enough. Now, one of the things that you mentioned is that because of the nature, the extensible nature of, of the operating partner role, in different companies you played different things. You, you were in business development, you were in operations, um, big data, you were, you were a COO. What is the one role that is the most misunderstood or perhaps mishired by in, in uh, companies, early stage companies? So I don't know that it's mishired, but I think it's, it is misunderstood. And I think it's also challenging. And that's the COO role. I think everyone is threatened by that role in an organization. I think founders are threatened because they think it, it removes some of their power and authority. I think different uh, heads of business units are concerned because now they, they're not sure if they're reporting to you and what is in your uh, span of control. And so I, I think it's critical if you go into a COO role that the roles and responsibilities of the founding team versus the COO versus the head of, of the different areas. So engineering, sales and marketing is very, very clearly articulated. And of course, it's challenging a startup because things move and things evolve and and that's certainly fine. But I did realize that when I went into a COO role through no fault of my own or or anyone else, people did feel threatened and did feel like they weren't hundred percent clear on what, where my responsibilities began and ended versus the others. And often, you know, in, in an early stage company, when you go into that role, you're the first person. So it's, you're not replacing someone else who was in that role. So there's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of ambiguity and that creates fear across an organization. Well, let's put, let's play a little bit more on the role of the CEO. It's, it's one that I'm fascinated by. And I had a chat with, with somebody else who was a CEO and they described the role of COO very unorthodoxly. They, they basically said it is the marriage between the COO and the CEO in which the CEO takes all the things and, and issues and responsibilities that the CEO is incapable of or unwilling to do. And the, the reason why it was articulated that way was because it was trying to accentuate how by, by that being the definition, no two organizations were going to have similar COO roles. It was all a function of what the CEO's strengths and weaknesses were rather than some sort of abstract, very much cookie cutter mm-hmm. role, which might be something more like a CFO role, which can be a little bit more replicable across organizations. Would you agree with that definition or would you, would you define it differently? So in an early stage company, I would 100% agree with, with that definition of you're, you're filling gaps. And in fact, I even said to some of my founders, tell me everything that you love Let's carve that out for you and I'll take the rest. So in an early stage company, I, I very much think it's case by case and um, the COO taking, you know, whatever anybody else doesn't want or what has never been done before. So I can give examples of both. But as a company matures, I think the role is is more defined. But I play in, in early stage. And so I haven't seen an example where, um, 
you know, it's, it's identical from one, from one company to the yeah. next. And how would you define the, the difference between when people use the word operations and processes and CO, and sometimes they mix them together in their head. How would you define the thin line between the author of processes, something known as operations and the role of chief operating officer? Where are the, where are the lines that define those three? So I think it really depends on on what the company is doing and how operationally intensive it is. And so if you've got a SaaS company that's delivering software, there might not be a whole operations and logistics function. And so the COO can be dealing with a lot of of issues, everything from finance to legal to customer success uh, slash account management, perhaps HR. But I can give it another example where I was dealing with an electronic cigarette company where the operations were very, very labor intensive. We had manufacturing in China. You had to get these items either on a ship or on a plane. You had to figure out how much inventory. You had to figure out the, the turns at the retailers. So there we needed a whole operations function in addition to a COO who was managing legal and finance and HR, et cetera, because the the nature of the business was just so operationally intensive and operations were a major cost of the business. So if we put something on a plane that could have gone on, on a boat, you know, it's a, a million dollar mistake. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And then when when you look at when you look at all the companies you've worked with and you trace back the origin of some of the processes that help the company uh, coordinate between employees, departments, and everything. Who are the usual authors of those processes? Does it come from management? Does it come from uh, the COO? Does it come from founder? Does it come from the, the staff itself? Then it bubbles up. What, what's the, where do you see the, the birth of, of some of these things? And how, how do you bring that together so that it's, it's distributed across the organization? I think it comes from whoever the the relative subject matter expert is in a specific area. So in in one company, we had a, a very junior woman who was dealing with marketing, but because she was a marketing expert and dealt with um, social media and dealt with trade shows, you know, we deferred to her to figure out our marketing plan. In in another organization, I brought with me the head of legal from a from conduit into another organization. And she was an expert on this. And so I really deferred to her to think about how we wanted to structure our contracts for new hires, how we wanted to structure our contracts for vendors, how we wanted to structure our sales, our sales contracts. And so it it really depends on, I I always defer to the subject matter expert in a respective Mm -hmm. field. There's no reason why I should be building a forecasting model when I have a a perfectly qualified Mm -hmm. CFO to do that. In, in other instances where you just have a gap and there is no one, it, it might fall on the, the hands of a, a COO or, or a founder to try and th- mm-hmm. think through a process. And so this idea that this person in your marketing department came up with this great idea and it, and it became a thing. When you look at organizational maps or organizational structures, there's a whole bunch of the cottage industry of books about, you know, decentralized organizations, mm-hmm. centralized organizations. What have you seen work best to take these ideas from experts, which might be towards the fringes of the organization and distribute that across the entire organization. How do you, what do you see works best in terms of communication between teams, how to organize teams, how to, how to facilitate ideas spreading throughout teams? What gen, what started in one department is actually a great idea to be rolled out across all departments. How, how have you seen that managed? So I think that that all comes from the culture of the organization. And if there is a culture and where people feel 
that they have the ability to speak freely and get rewarded for doing so, then you're going to have ideas from all pockets. You're going to have product ideas that come from engineering. You're going to have marketing ideas that may come from product, etc. But that really comes from the top and a willingness of management to listen to, to different people and, and the experiences that they bring to the table. Uh, where I've seen it fail is where there's this culture of fear or culture of not being rewarded for bringing ideas. And so oftentimes the, the best companies I've been a part of do different weekly meetings or do Thirsty Thursdays or do Fuck Up Friday, excuse the language, where there is a lot of opportunity to share lessons learned from the field, lessons learned from customers, lessons learned from sales visits, and disseminate in, information and hear really exciting ideas. There's also, of course, always hackathons and different events to bring together people from outside the organization to showcase good ideas as well. But I think if the founding team is threatened by some of those external ideas or threatened by internal employees, then it's toxic and you're not going to showcase those ideas and you're not going to showcase innovations and you're not going to showcase, you know, new improvements to products. No, that's great. Great, great thoughts um, for, for leaders to, to implement, especially in their culture as they're thinking through how to create an environment where they bring out the best in people. So you've moved to BCG Digital Ventures. Tell us a little bit more about them, what you do, what you're looking for. Sure, happy to. So I've been with BCG uh, DV, as we call it, for a few months now, and it's it's a really exciting place. So most people know Boston Consulting Group and the the management consultants, and I, I too am an ex management consultant, although I was at Bain. And BCG DV reached out to me. And they're up to something pretty unique. So it's a fully owned subsidiary within BCG. It has a separate partnership team and a separate structure and very, very different employees than traditional BCG. And what we do is we partner with big corporates and private equity firms, and we innovate and incubate and invest in startups side by side with them. And so we provide all the resources that it takes to figure out what startup a big corporate partner should launch. And then we go ahead and launch it in our center here in London or any of our centers around the world in which there are seven. And we co-invest with the corporate partner to bring it to, to market. And so the type of folks that we have sitting in our office range across a number of different cohorts. So there are people like traditional BCG consultants. We call them venture architects. And that's the role I play. So it's, it's a general manager as we incubate and launch new ventures. But we also have product teams, engineering teams, UI, UX, uh, strategic designers who really bring us into the field and get market feedback from the customers um, and all the different functions that it takes to bring a startup to market. And so it's a really interesting spin on working in the startup ecosystem and uh, the world of emerging technologies. Cool. Sounds like you're in line to do some really great work and have a lot of fun. Well, we always like to wrap things up with at least one uh, fun question that is out of the blue. One of the ones that I, I, I most like because it's kind of thought provoking is what is the thing that 50 years from now we'll look back today and think, how did we let that happen? Now, you know, we look back in history from today's point of view and we think about the world wars, we think about civil rights, we think about uh, many things that you know have changed over the years, but I'm not trying to pigeonhole it into specifically civil rights or anything like that. But if you fast forward 50 years and we look at this era that we're in at the moment, all the things that are going on politically, ecologically, everything, what what do you think we'll look back and be like, wow, we got that so wrong? Uh, off the top of my my mind, two two things. Uh, 
are bubbling up. And and it's funny, I just returned from a week with my Aspen Institute fellows. So I'm a finance fellow with the Aspen Institute. And we had many of these conversations where, you know, we we think big thoughts and pontificate about the future and what we should be doing to, to change course on, on some of these topics. So the two that come to mind are one, making sure we continue to use technology for good and, and not evil. And I think that's just from a vantage point of where we sit, we're seeing so many emerging technologies and, and you're seeing great things happen with those technologies, whether it's in the, the world of, of medical care and the world of how we communicate more effectively or giving financial access to people who have not otherwise had it. But we also have the potential to, to have this really backfire on us if we're not careful. And it's completely changing the way people communicate with each other, probably uh, to our detriment. And the way we, we engage and interact. So, so I think just being mindful of, of technology and, and the applications that are being developed is something we all need to be aware of, especially as, as early stage investors and builders of companies. The second is, of course, the environment and us not being conscious of the resources we're using and not taking more serious action at a, at a local and at a global level. Yeah, no, that's that's one that I particularly am fearful of looking back and living in a sea of plastic. Okay, cool. Well, all right, one last one. Right. If you could, if you could uh, pick a superhero in the Marvel comics universe, which one would you be and why? Oh my, I think my depth of Marvel characters might be limited. But I, I will tell you, if I could have any superpower or talent, it would be to sing and, or have any musical capabilities because you can bring that with you wherever you go. You could always be the life of a party by playing your guitar or belting out a song. And because I really lack that skill, I have such an appreciation for, for people who who are able to do it. It would be nice to fly and not spend all my time uh, on trains and planes and automobiles getting from place to place. But that doesn't make me fun at parties, and I think the singing uh, <laughs> would be would I be more it. fun for both my family and friends. The fun at parties, and get optimized around that. Well, thanks for joining us, Danielle. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Always happy to come to Seed Camp and get some good coffee. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Goodbye, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.